Hey, everybody, I'm Wayne Smith, and I am an alcoholic. And Michael talking about coming to that first meeting. I remember, I said, that's the happiest newcomer I've ever seen in my life. I didn't know he was still drinking. Uh, uh, Tapering off. Yeah, yeah, talking about tapering off. Look at Bill here. He always said his wife couldn't tell the difference between drinking and tapering off. Uh, In about 45 minutes, I'll be real glad to be here. Uh, This is not my favorite thing to do. I'm always grateful that I can do it. Um, I don't know why it seems to help me when I tell you that this is one of my greatest fears, or used to be, let's put it that way, fear of public speaking. And I always think about Jerry Seinfeld. He did a little routine. He talked about this survey they did where they list people's greatest fears and and public speaking was number one. Number two was dying. And he said, so that means at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than up there delivering a eulogy. And I could identify with that. But uh, I'm really grateful that this program of Alcoholics Anonymous has afforded me the, the opportunity to find a power greater than myself that could help me remove some of those fears and finally face some of my fears. Because just like that big book says, I was driven by 100 forms of fear before I got to you. Um, let me do a little housekeeping here. My sobriety date is October the 18th, 1997. I'll do the math for you. That means it's been over 18 years since I've misplaced an automobile. Uh, and I'm truly grateful for that. I've got a home group that Michael mentioned, uh, the early bird, and I'm so grateful to see so many of my home group members here. I really appreciate y'all showing up. Uh, as he mentioned also, I work at the local treatment center. Part of my job is to coordinate the volunteer program. And I needed an extra driver tonight, and I called Chris Matthews and uh, asked him if he would drive. He said, let me check with my wife, and I'll get back with you. I waited until he made a commitment before I told him who was speaking. <laughs> he's, he's probably heard me uh, 20 times. But anyway, I'm grateful to all of you for showing up tonight. Um, I was born a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> 1947, Richmond, Virginia. Had a um, two sober parents, hardworking, great people. Had an older brother and a younger sister. Um, now, part of my story is that my father had a job that required him to relocate extremely often. It seemed like we moved at least once a year for a long time, and it, and I was always starting over in a new town, and. Uh, I guess when I was about eight or nine years old, we had settled in the little town of Lillington, North Carolina. It's down in the Sand Hills near uh, Pinehurst. And for the first time, we stayed there long enough for me to feel fairly comfortable in this little community, this town I was in. And I remember, you know, I, I had a best friend for the first time. First time I'd stayed anywhere long enough to have a best friend. And I did all the things that normal boys do, little league ball, scouts, all that stuff. And this little town was just, you know, a really safe place and wonderful place to grow up, raise a family. Population about 2,000. And um, one Saturday afternoon, however, me and one of my little friends decided to go to the uh, local matinee for a cowboy movie, I'm sure it was, in the afternoon. And what I remember is that uh, the theater was mostly deserted and dark. And there was this man at the concession stand that separated me from my little buddy and told me I needed to go to the back of the theater. 
and sit with him. And what happened is that man sexually abused me in the back of that theater. And um, I say this for many reasons. One is that I heard one of the victims of the Catholic sex scandal uh, say, I talk about it today because the abuse did not end until I talked about it. Uh, and I agree with that. I also know I'm not the only alcoholic that has happened to. I guess at one point I thought I was, uh, but after being in this program, I know. I, th I heard some statistics that over 50% of all uh, male addicts have been sexually abused and something like 95% of all female addicts. Um, and now that didn't cause me to be an alcoholic. Let me make that clear. I'm sure there are plenty of people that, would abuse, that were abused who did not become alcoholics. But it, I tell you what it did, it, it created another load of shame. Shame, shame, shame. Which I'm, I'm convinced that's at the core of my disease, shame. When I was in treatment uh, at Fellowship Paul, they gave me this pamphlet called Shame Faced. And I love that pamphlet because it was all about me. Um, you know, uh, you know, that sexual abuse, it, it really did a number on me. And I didn't realize it until I got to this program. And I thank God for sponsorship. You know, I had a sponsor at, when I did my fifth step with him. He pointed out something I would have never gotten to on my own. He said, Wayne, he said, after I described that sexual abuse to him, he said, is it possible that that's when you became separated from God? And I said, yes, sir. That's exactly what happened. I think that I, I internalized that, that if, this, if there was a God, you know, he would not have let that happen to me in the movie theater. And, uh, and another thing I took away from that experience is this world is a dangerous place, and you better watch out, Wayne. I became hypervigilant at the age of eight or nine years old. And, you know, it was like my childhood was over. I may have been happy, joyous, and free at some point as a kid, but I really don't remember it. It's like I was robbed of a childhood. And I think this is probably a common experience for people that suffer uh, abuse like that. Anyway, um, I was a victim that day. The rest of this crap I volunteered for. So, uh, um, we moved away from that town eventually, and we moved to a little town of Madison, 30 miles north of here. And uh, I'm trying to start over in a new town, try to make new friends. And, uh, you know, I was just so self-conscious and, and ill at ease and uncomfortable in my own skin. I always have been. I don't know how much that sexual abuse had to do with that, but um, so self-conscious and shy. I used to call it, I, was, I used to say I was painfully shy. What the hell it was, I was scared to death. And I had a right to be uh, after that experience. But when I was uh, about 15 years old, I found a magic cure for all that fear. It came in a little can of uh, six-ounce country club malt liquor. Actually, it was in the third can. That's when the magic happened. <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about, man. All of a sudden, I wasn't shy anymore. Bring on the women. Um, yeah, I, I didn't have a care in the world. And I didn't, didn't say it out loud, but I think I made a conscious decision that night that I was going to do this every chance I got. I had found the problem. I was born a pint low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I tried to keep my fluid levels topped off from then on out. And I'm one of those alcoholics. I mean, it worked for me, and it worked a long time. I heard another speaker say that uh, for some of us, the chains of alcoholism are so light that by the time we notice them, they're almost impossible to break. 
and that's my story. Um, because, it, like I said, it worked so well for me. I knew where to get that relief. And before I got to you people, uh, you know, I always wanted somebody to give me a definition of an alcoholic. And when I finally got here, my sponsor told me, he said, an alcoholic is one who has intimate knowledge of the relief available in, in a bottle. And I have that intimate knowledge hardwired into me. And I want to drop one other uh, little piece of information on y'all. I don't know why I couldn't hear this stuff in the beginning. I had to uh, stay sober for years before I could hear the wisdom in these things. Any, anybody out here ever uh, have an internal debate on, am I alcoholic or am I not? Uh, I went on for years like that. Turns out, one of the old timers told me, he said, do you know non-alcoholics spend absolutely zero time <laughs> trying to figure out if they're alcoholics or not? <laughs> Think about that. Um, I used to spend a lot of time doing that. Okay, so, um, you know, I was one of those uh, alcoholics who had a lot of advantages, too. Like I said, I had, a, you know, uh, sober parents, good, hard working. If you would ask anybody in my community, they would have said they're a good family, salt of the earth. Uh, of course, they would tell me what a wonderful father I had, and that would confuse me because I'm thinking, are they talking about the same SOB that comes to my house every day? <laughs> Because when Dad got home from work, he was full of rage. It was all—it was like waiting for the other shoe to drop. The whole atmosphere in my household changed when, when Dad got home. Today, I think I know where a little bit of that anger came from. It turns out that both of my grandfathers were alcoholics. Now, they didn't call them alcoholics, but they sure walked like them and quacked like them. And, uh, you know, I'm convinced that... Uh, that that was his problem. He had a lot of rage. And after I finally got sober, he used to come to AA meetings with me. He loved AA. And uh, I finally got him to talk a little about his childhood, and he would tell me these awful stories about his father abandoning him and his mother over and over and terrible fights and butcher knives being drawn and him trying to protect his mother from his father. Uh, so I began to understand a little bit about where that anger came from, and I was able to begin the process of forgiving him because he was number one on my resentment list when I got to you uh, people. Um, okay, so I get out of high school and I make a half, half-ass attempt at going to college, but I was partying so hard, it was hard to make it to class, you know. <laughs> and uh, the Vietnam War was raging back then, and we had this thing called the draft. And this is part of the insanity of my disease. Even at that early age, all I had to do to avoid the draft is to stay in school. But I'd too busy partying, I dropped out and got drafted. Of course, I look back and uh, I believe this higher power we talk about has been looking after me all the way because uh, what happened is basic training, they took some of us that tested well and told us we could, uh, they would give us an opportunity to join something called the Army Security Agency which is a branch of the National Security Agency. Only hitch was you had to take a, an extra year, sign up for a third year. But I knew even if I went to Vietnam, if I was in the Army Security Agency, I wouldn't be on any front lines. So, you know, uh, I opted for that third year. And, uh, but I wound up uh, spending my active duty time in Turkey, part of it in Istanbul and uh, another hardship tour up on the Black Sea. So I was protecting y'all from the Viet Cong in Istanbul. <laughs> uh, and, but there's where I became a daily drinker. Booze was cheap and plentiful, and nobody watching me. And I, I could drink as much as I wanted. And got out of the service, uh, discharged 1970 or so. 
came back home and uh, and the hippie movement was wide open then. Now, I never was a hippie, but uh, I sure did like to hang around them. And, and uh, you know, I'd wear my suit and tie to work and then go out and party with the hippies. And uh, I did a lot of outside issues, let's put it that way, that, uh, other than alcohol. My alcoholism took on many forms. And um, I'm one of those alcoholics. I had a real strong work ethic instilled in me by my parents. and. I've always been a pretty good employee. I've developed a pattern where I'd work real hard at a job for four or five years and then just go on a spree. And I never got fired, but a couple of times I stayed out of work so long I was embarrassed to go back. So I just, just, uh, just didn't. You know, I heard another speaker telling a story about an uh, alcoholic who was out in San Francisco during the great earthquake, checked into a hotel room and he slept through the whole darn thing. Uh, but the next morning he got up and looked out the window and saw all these bridges buckled and cars overturned, buildings on fire. And he looked out there and he said, oh, my God, how am I going to pay for all this? <laughs> uh, I've, woke, I've, I've awakened in similar situations. Let's put it in that. Um, and, you know, uh, the big book says lack of power. That's our dilemma. But I always thought it was lack of money. Lack of money, that's my dilemma. I always thought if I could just get my hands on enough money, I could figure the rest of it out. And, uh, but you know, God gave me that opportunity. Uh, in my, uh, when I was about 40 years old, uh, my brother and I started this business. It was a staffing service, temporary employment service. And um, this thing took off and became successful beyond my wildest dreams. And just a few short years, I was a millionaire and... I thought, I have arrived. And I don't say this to brag because there's nothing to brag about when God gives you an opportunity to be successful like that and you throw it all away like I did. Uh, but, um, you know, even as I was accumulating all this wealth, I, I still had this sense of impending doom. I'd never heard that phrase until I heard my sponsor say it one day at my home group. And I'd never heard that turn of phrase, but I knew what it meant because I'd lived with that sense of impending doom. You know, I had my little red Jaguar convertible. I'd drive around and uh, look at me, look at me. It turns out the police will look at you too when you're driving something <laughs> like that. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, you know, if you'd ask any of my friends, how's old Wayne doing? They'd say, that sucker's got it made, man. Got all this money. Had me a beautiful girlfriend, 20 years younger than me, and, uh, you know, I'd like to dress in all these nice suits. Always trying to cover myself up, you know, my surroundings. I wanted to look good on the outside because I felt so rotten on the inside. Another way that uh, sexual abuse affected me, it's very important to me, is that somehow I felt like my masculinity was always in question, that I was not enough of a man, that there was something wrong with me because that guy chose me in that movie theater. Why didn't he pick my little buddy instead of me? Uh, and, you know, later on after I uh, reached puberty, and uh, I tried to convince myself that was no big deal. It only happened one time, and he was a stranger, and I never saw him again. Yeah, I think you all know it was a big deal. Anyway, getting back to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking good on the outside, and I'm waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning, like I did this morning. I tell you, when I, when I got to speak, 
uh, either the night before or the night after something happens and I can't, uh, you know, I can't sleep. I get to thinking about all that madness. And I wish y'all could have heard that talk I made at 3.30 this morning. That was a good one. I don't know how this one's going to be. Um, but, you know, like I said, the police will notice when you're driving around at 3 o'clock in the morning weaving in a red Jaguar convertible. And I got my second DWI, and my lawyer said, I don't know if I can get you out of this one or not. And he said, what I want you to do is go to this treatment center called the Life Center of Galax. Go up there for, I think it was 10 days. And he said, that way, if you're convicted, you won't have to go to jail. And, you know, I'm thinking jail, treatment. <laughs> I didn't see a whole lot of difference. I mean, to me, going to treatment ranked just slightly below pulling hard time. Uh, I don't know what I thought treatment was going to be, but I was terrified. I was terrified. But I, I went up there, and one of the guys on the staff, he told me, when I, uh, right before I got ready to leave, he said, you know something, you were the one of the angriest men I've ever seen come in here. And that totally shocked me because what I was was scared. But when I'm scared, it comes across as anger. And, um, but before I went to that treatment center, I, I called ahead up there because I had a couple of questions for them. I wanted to know if I could bring my antidepressant pills. And they said, sure, bring them on. I got there and they took them away. <laughs> Dirty trick. And I also wanted to know if they had a place I could park my car so I could park my little Jaguar out there so they would know that, you know, I'm kind of special. <laughs> Probably not an alcoholic. You know, alcoholics don't drive cars like that, right? Okay, so I get out of that treatment center. Uh, and the funny thing about it, uh, on the day, day I, I couldn't wait to leave when I first got there. On the day it was time for me to leave, I didn't want to go. I'd felt something in there. And what I believe today I'd felt is the presence of God. As a matter of fact, I made a notation in some of my literature, whatever the date was, the day I first felt the presence of God because I finally tried that prayer thing that you talked about. Well, I come back home, um, and I remember it was a Sunday afternoon, and I lay down on my bed, and I felt, and I slept the most peaceful sleep for three or four hours that I'd slept in ages, ages. You know, sleep, I've always... Uh, had problems with insomnia. And I think I know where it started. That little children's prayer, now lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake up, pray the Lord my soul to take. Now, good night, son. <laughs> that prayer scared the hell out of me. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. Most of the people, uh, the guys that were in treatment with me were from the hood in D.C. and Philadelphia. Most of them were crack addicts. And I remember thinking, you know, I feel sorry for those guys. I wish it was some way I could help them. Uh, and I said, how can anybody let, you know, let something like that take over their lives? I heard these horror stories, which is kind of ironic because a few months later I had turned into Crackula. <laughs> Yeah, I decided I was going to be the first successful crack smoker in history. <laughs> and, and I had a problem, though, uh, that, that uh, you know, most people, all that money. And I'm serious. It's not funny. I still had all this money, and uh, I had enough to almost kill myself. That day, though, when I, uh, after that peaceful sleep, I went to the grocery store to stock up on groceries, and I've always been an avid reader. So I stopped by the paperback book section, and I found me a book called How to Be a Social Drinker. I picked that up in a case of beer and went home to read up on it. 
I finished the case of beer, and I did not finish uh, that book, however. <laughs> and it didn't occur to me until I'd been sober many years, who else but an alcoholic would aspire to be a social drinker? <laughs> you know, it, se it seems all clear now, and back then it wasn't. Okay, so uh, rolling along here, and then uh, one of my previous associates, I won't call him a friend, had caught a seven-year prison term for cocaine conspiracy and automatic weapons or something. He got out of prison and came to see old Wayne because, you know, he did, first of all, he needed a loan. Uh, and he heard I was doing well, and uh, and he's the one that uh, bought, brought that funny-looking pipe and said, here, try this. You know? and, uh, and I was hooked almost immediately. I've never experienced anything so addictive in all my life. Um, and the party was on, at least in the beginning, it was a party. And you can draw a big crowd when you're giving away free cocaine, I guarantee you that. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, and I just, I stopped going to work. Uh, me and my brother owned this business, and I just quit going to work for weeks at a time. And, and I guess I just thought he was going to continue to send me my half of the money, but he didn't see it that way. Uh, now, long about this time, it's getting crazier and crazier, and, uh, and my dear mother is, uh, seemed like the sicker she got, the sicker I got. She had congestive heart failure and, um, you know, started spending a lot of time going to the hospital and having open-heart surgery and all of that stuff. And, and, and I began to not show up for holidays and anniversaries and things like that. Uh, nobody ever knew if they could count on me to, to show up. It's like I couldn't stand to see my mother, uh, you know, hurting. We got my, I always say my family's so codependent that I'm sure when I die, someone else's life will flash before my eyes. <laughs> yeah. But, you know... Uh, <laughs> The day came when, when, uh, when my, my mother, uh, of course, eventually I had to sell my share of the business to my brother. And, um, and, and the party didn't last long. I mean, with that substance, it'll take you down quick. Um, the party didn't last long at all. And got to the point where it turns out if you stay up for four or five days, you know, drinking and doing those things, you begin to see stuff that ain't there. Uh, I was having these terrible hallucinations. Uh, I had blankets nailed over the windows. And, uh, and I had a house that was paid for, but I couldn't manage to pay the light bill. And my brother had, we'd made a settlement on that uh, business. He paid me a lump sum, which I blew through. I think it was $100,000 I blew through just immediately. And then he gave me, uh, it was set up where I got $6,000 a month. And I couldn't stretch that $6,000 10 days. You know, that sounds, back then that was a lot of money. It still is, man. Um, but I'm sitting over there in the middle of winter with, a, with no power in my house. Could not manage to pay the power bill. So I had no problem with y'all talking about my life being unmanageable. When I got here, I said, I understand. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But the day came when uh, I got the call from from my sister. And now I got this sister who is a fundamentalist Christian. And I used to make fun of her religion. And uh, 
I still, you know, I, I don't believe the same thing she believes. But she is the one in my family that would not let go of me. You know, my mother was sick. My father had his hands full there. My brother said, to hell with him. He's going to kill himself, leave him alone. Don't go around him. Um, but my sister would not let go of me. Her and her prayer group and Bible study group, they, uh, they prayed for me. They had people all over the world praying for me. Um, and they would fix me care packages. Now, I wouldn't answer the door uh, or the phone, but uh, they would leave me a message that we're going to drop off a care package for you. And I'd wait until they left. I didn't want the Christians to catch me outside, you know. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, and there would be things in there. There would be food to eat, and there would be uh, like a roll of toilet paper. I don't know how they knew I was out of toilet paper. <laughs> but th there would also be scripture in there. And, oh, man, that used to make me so mad. I'd, I hate I'd ball that scripture up and throw it in the floor. I didn't want to hear any part of this, you know, because I didn't believe. I don't know what I believed. At times I described myself as an atheist, at times an agnostic. But I always say I was pretty sure God was going to get me for that. And so basically I was very confused is what I was. Um, but I had this real problem with this God thing when I got to you people. Uh, I didn't see how I was going to be able to take that third step. And I love listening to, to other speakers to CDs. Uh, I heard one uh, speaker talking about, he told his sponsor, he said, uh, he said, I don't know about this third step. He said, I just don't believe all this stuff. And he said, uh, I would feel like a real hypocrite if I, you know, tried to turn my life and my will over to the care of God. And his sponsor says, well, listen, uh, he said, we need to address your problems in the order in which they will kill your ass. <laughs> and he said, hypocrisy is way down at the bottom of that. Area. <laughs> anyway, I get the call uh, that my mom's dying. My sister calls, and she said the hospice nurse asked for you to... Uh, see if we could get you over here because she's calling your name. And, um, you know, I, somehow I made it to my uh, mother's bedside that night, and we knew she was going to die that night. The death rattle had already started. She, her eyes were closed, and, uh, and she was just calling my name because I was the only one that wasn't there. I went to her bedside and I told her one last lie. I told her I was okay. And she, uh, that seemed to give her some kind of peace. But this is the part that's the hardest to tell about my story because of what, while the rest of my family gathered around and, and did what families are supposed to do, let me tell you what Wayne did. I told him, I said, I got to go back to Greensboro. I got to go take a shower. And I, showers were not high on my priority list. I guarantee you that. I don't know when I'd had a bath. And I left. I walked away from my mother's deathbed. And I think y'all know where I had to go. I had to go get high. Because I could not stand what I had become. And let me tell you something. I would have never believed it. But this disease is more powerful than the love, my love for my dear mother, who never would have turned her back on me. 
Oh, sure did. All right, you might think that's enough of a bottom for me to get sober, but no, I, you know, I, I just wanted to stay wasted and not feel anything, and I got pretty good at it. Uh, like I said, the party had been over a long time. I'm just drinking for oblivion now. And, uh, you know, it, it kept getting worse, getting worse, and finally my sister and brother had me committed, involuntarily committed to... Um, Charter Hospital in Winston Salem, and uh, I, th I was so sick. <laughs> I, by this time, I'd have started doing all those things. I said I'd never do sticking needles in my arms and had, you know, track marks all over me. And I checked in into that place, and uh, the technician, the nurse tech, was looking at my arms. He said, "Who did this to your arms?" And I said, "I did." And he said, "Don't you think you?" You ought not to be doing that unless you've been trained to do that. And I said, oh, is that available here? <laughs> mm. All right, so I get out of there, and I'm still not through, uh, you know, but uh, somewhere along the line. Uh, by this time, I'd managed to lose that house it was paid for. I'd moved into a third-floor walk-up apartment uh, Hidden Lakes, you know, I like the name of that. Hidden Lakes, I wanted to go hide somewhere. And I never even set the bed up in that place. I just leaned it up against the wall because I never went to bed. I, I lived on the couch. Now, I did nail some blankets over the windows, you know, so they couldn't see in. And I don't know who they are, but they're real tall people because it was a third floor apartment. <laughs> Uh, man, they were, and the government was watching me. I told you I was in the Army Security Agency, and they were dropping invisible wires on me from these helicopters flying all over the place. They were watching me through the TV. I'd have to put a blanket over the TV every now and then. Uh, okay, it's about time for me to get sober, ain't it, Bill? No, no pressure here. Bill Crawford, Gordon Rail over there, conference speakers. Uh, okay, um... People, uh, some people ask me, what made you finally decide to get help? And the answer I give them is uh, two things. I did not want to die. In spite of all the madness, I did not want to die. And I felt like I owed it to my family. But I really didn't think there was any hope for me. Uh, so I checked into Fellowship Hall on October the 18th, 1997. I thought it was the worst day of my life. It turned out to be the best day of my life. Um, Checked in, and the woman doing the admission, she said, asked me some questions. She said, you want any medications? And I said, just self-prescribed cocaine. And she said, <laughs> she said, I did that too, honey. Uh, so she said, you got any health problems? And I said, hepatitis C. Oh, that's another thing I didn't tell you about. I contracted hepatitis C. That's one of the biggest reasons I, I knew I was dying, because every time I would start drinking and drugging, I would turn yellow, get sick. Um, and she said, I, I had hepatitis C, too. She said, oh. anyway, she told me, she said, you're going to be okay. You're in the right place. And so I went into that treatment center, thank God for it, and I began my recovery. And, and you know, I just, I'd had enough. Finally, I'd had enough. And I, I heard them talking about this surrender thing. And my favorite definition of surrender, I heard a Catholic nun say it, who was in this program. She said, surrender is simply the willingness to get well. Someone else's way. That's the key. Someone else's way. My way had not been working, obviously. And um, and then they, they showed me one of those films one day. I got so tired of watching those videos. And this one was uh, Brother Earl's 
Chalk Talk, I think it was. Gordon may remember. I don't know if they still use it or not. But but Brother Earl was talking about his grandmother was so special in his life and how she would take each one of the grandchildren and they would have a special day on Saturday. And and he said, and when she would bake pie, she would bake me my own little individual pie. And Lord, the tears started then because see, my dear mother used to do that for me. She would bake me those little pies. So, you know, the walls came down, the tears came out, and I began to heal. There's healing in those tears. And, uh, man, I shed a many ones since I got sober. Um, another thing I remember, uh, I was explaining to one of those counselors in treatment how I was different from everybody else in that treatment center. And he said, oh, he got really interested then. He said, tell me how you're different. And I said, well... I'm a self-made millionaire, and I uh, always threw that in there, self-made. You know. <laughs> uh, self-made millionaire, and uh, I said, I never had to steal anything to support my habits. And he leaned right across the table and looked me dead in the eye. He said, you never stole anything to support your habits. And, you know, the wheels started turning, and I started backpedaling. And uh, I said, well, there was this one time now that I had this job, I said, when I collected, uh, where I would collect cash payments. I used to borrow some of that money, but I always put it back. And he said, there's another word for that, Wayne. I said, what's that? He said, larceny. <laughs> larceny. And, you know, he pointed out to me, I had convinced myself with my magical thinking that what I was doing was borrowing. I'm so grateful for people in this program that will tell you the truth about yourself. Um, okay, so I get out. Oh, um, three weeks into treatment, my counselor comes to me and tells me that uh, my insurance is crapped out and that uh, he wants me to go to this thing called the Gateway House, halfway house on the grounds of Fellowship Hall. And my immediate answer after surrendering three weeks ago was, no, I don't need that. You know, I'm too good to go to a halfway house. If you could have seen that pigsty I was living in, any kind of halfway house would have been a step up, and it was much nicer than where I was living. So uh, he told me, he said, I don't want you to make that decision today. I want you to get down on your knees tonight and pray to whatever understanding of a God you've got and talk to your friends and family before you make that decision. And that night, as soon as I got down on my knees, I remember, I said, oh, yeah, I said I was going to do what they told me this time. And I did. And that decision saved my life. Um, went there and uh, began my recovery. And, and from there, I went to what was my first home group was uh, the Dawn Patrol that meets over at the Unity Club. That's where I met my sponsor, another Wayne S. His name is Wayne S. It's like God wanted to make sure I knew who to pick. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I knew I wanted this man. And the thing that attracted me to him, he had 20 years sobriety, of course, first thing. But he was a real man's man. And, you know, I'd always felt so insecure. I always felt like I was such a poor excuse for a man. He was a real, uh, you know, man's man. And uh, he knew that big book, too. Yeah. And so he's, uh, he kind of took me under his wing, and I started following him around. And, um, you know, he's the one. Without him gently pushing me, not so gentle at times, uh, I would have never done all the, the things that are so important. And, you know, I always, uh, I always say the keys to my recovery lie just outside my comfort zone. Just like tonight. This is, I mean, once I get started, I'm fine. You know, but getting up here is totally uncomfortable for me and uh, I, that's one of the first God shots I got was the first time my sponsor he didn't ask me if I was going to speak he said you're going to speak next Thursday night and, and I seriously considered resigning from AA I swear I did uh, I was so terrified um, 
But a funny thing happened. I prayed all day long, and when I got up there and I said, my name's Wayne, I'm an alcoholic, I want you to know a calmness came over me that was not of me. You know, if some, if Wayne, I can't do this, you know, but that night I did, and I don't know what I said. Everybody told me it was a wonderful talk. But the thing that I remember is my sponsor came up to me afterwards, and he said, let me ask you something. I said, what's that? He said, what has happened to your nervousness for the past 45 minutes? And I didn't know, man, I said, damn, how about that? What did happen? What I believe today is God removed it, you know. And that's the way I had to start. I had to start praying to a God I didn't really believe in, I was unsure about, and that's okay. I'm so grateful this is not a religious program, and you know, because my sister carried me all over the place. They they had me dipped and dunked and spritzed and sprayed and uh, and, and spoke in tongues and... uh, and none of it took on me. But, but when I got to AA, y'all were talking my language. And, um, and uh, you know, we, I started working the steps with my sponsor, and he would take me uh, with him all over the place. He was sort of semi-retired at that time, and, I mean, we'd go to two or three meetings a day. And he had a, a beach house down at uh, the coast. And I always say, when the topic of sponsorship comes up, I highly recommend choosing a sponsor with oceanfront property. That's all. <laughs> We would sit there on his deck and look out over the Atlantic Ocean, and he would teach me about AA and the history of AA, and we'd talk about God. And he said, i got a million questions for him when I get to heaven. His first thing is, why did you invent the mosquito? <laughs> uh, and, you know, um, I never will. I talk about that fifth step I did with him when I was about six or seven months sober. And, it, and oh, man, what a wonderful experience that was. And uh, I remember he told me, uh, he said, Wayne, said, don't you see, I was talking about all my resentments against my father, and he said, you've been trying to get your father to love you your whole life. He said, that's like going to the hardware store looking for a loaf of bread. He said, he just doesn't have it in stock, you know. He's just giving you what he's been given. But by the time my, my father died, you know, I had 15 years of sobriety at that point, and we had done a bunch of healing, buddy, and I loved him, and he loved me, and and we we didn't have any unfinished business when he passed away, but we did that that fifth step, and I never will forget. Um, I came to the part, and I said, Wayne, I said I want to tell you, I'm the biggest coward that ever walked the face of this earth. You know how we alcoholics are. We can't be the best. We want to be the worst. Yeah, you know, I'm. I really felt like I was the biggest coward that ever walked the face of the earth. He said, Let me. He said, You stop right there. Let me tell you something. I said, What's that? He said. Cowards don't come into this program and stay sober for six months. And he hit me with that truth, and I said, damn, that's that's correct. I knew it took some courage. But today, make no mistake about it, I know where that courage came from, this God of my understanding that you allowed me to have. And I love the the soft-sell approach. You know, my sponsor said, you know, if you you don't have a higher power, just borrow mine until you can get one. Or use the group, you know, the acronym, Good Orderly Drug. Good orderly direction or a group of drunks. And that uh, thought for the day that was being read up here, something about lying. Well, Sandy asked me before I got up here, he said, Are you going to tell the truth? And I said, I don't know. I've cut way back on my line. <laughs> but one of the most spiritual things over at the uh, Unity Club one day, I was, I was sharing about all my, you know, all the wreckage of my past. How am I ever going to live with myself? And, um, Old Steve Tracy spoke up, one old biker dude in the back there. He said, man, just don't tell any new lies today. I love that. You know, I said, you know, I might, I might can manage that. Uh, 
I can go a whole day without telling a lie. Um, I'm going to wrap this thing up. Uh, one thing I did want to tell you all about is when I had my first spot seen, uh, we were going to do his fifth step. And the night before we were to do that, I got down on my knees in my living room and I prayed. I, I'm sure what is the first totally unselfish prayer I ever prayed in my life. I didn't ask for a thing for Wayne Smith. I, I prayed that my friend Jerry would have the promises come true in his life, that he would have a new freedom and a new happiness, that he would not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it, that he would comprehend the word serenity and that he would know peace. And like y'all taught me, I remained on my knees in silence and it hit me like a ton of bricks. It washed over me. All I can tell you is God came and got in that room with me that night. I feel him in me and through me. It was almost like a Bill Wilson experience. I felt a gentle breeze blowing. And I received a message. The message was, you are forgiven, Wayne. And I, like I said, I didn't ask for a thing for myself. But, but I, I got this message, you are forgiven. And man, I needed me some forgiveness. I never will forget my sister that I told you about. Um, you know, she used to send me a card or a letter every day I was in treatment. And she had a quote in there that I really loved and I talk about it all the time. She said, forgiveness is letting go of the hope for a better past. And the way that was worded, it made me realize that's what I'd been doing, sitting around wishing my past would change. Guess what? That ain't going to happen. But I stand before you today with 18 years of a past that I'm extremely grateful for and, and so proud of. And I say it all the time. It just hit me a couple of years ago, this shame that I talk about. You know, in the past 18 years, I've done some things probably I'd like to do over or tweak a little bit, do differently. But I can't think of a single thing that I've done that I'm ashamed of in the past 18 years since I got in the middle of this program and stayed here. And I always say now, if you ever get asked to speak, just remember this, you'll never be alone again unless it's five after nine and you're still up here talking. Thanks for letting me share.